is seeing how our children resemble us. <laughs> well, I guess it depends on the family. There are certain things we want our children to resemble us like, and then there are other things we hope that maybe they resemble another family member or someone completely different. Um, it's funny how when they're little, you're looking at their nose and their ears and different shapes and pieces of their little body and saying, oh, that's so like so-and-so, and oh, that's like such-and-such. And then as they grow, um, the resemblances, like that stuff is just kind of basically made up. You parents, that kind of stuff is just kind of made up. Like, have fun with it, but you're just actually making stuff up at that point when they're that little. It's when they actually start to grow and uh, get taller and, and older that those actual family resemblances begin to manifest themselves. And it's a lot of fun to see that. I know that uh, looking back at pictures of the boys, um, we see family resemblances. One of the sweet things that I, I love about um, Trish, her maiden name is Stone, and she has a big sister and a mom, of course. The Stone women all laugh the same way. Like, really laugh. Like, there's like the, oh, that was funny laugh, and then there's like, you caught me by surprise, and now I'm like guffawing laugh. The Stone women all do it the same way. And when I hear it, it makes me laugh even harder, because she shares it with her big sister, Kirsten, and her mom, Sherry. And it's one of those family resemblances. It goes beyond a, a physical resemblance, it's actually a behavioral resemblance. Um, what's kind of spooky and a little bit creepy for us is there was a picture taken on our wedding day at the Norwich Alliance Church uh, where we were married, and I'm standing like this, and Trish is obviously right here, and Pastor Jack, my pastor from Tennessee at the time, is right here. And the photographer took a picture from the side, and it looks like Ed is about to hold hands with his mom. It's kind of spooky, because it doesn't look like me so much anymore, the 20-year-old version of myself, or something that looks more like Ed than it looks like the almost 50-year-old version of myself. And so it's kind of it's kind of funny. And we know that families resemble each other, and it's, it's almost a source of endless conversation and delight when we talk about how so-and-so resembles so-and-so. In the book of 1 John, in the first two chapters, what we've seen, especially in the text from last week, is that John is writing about what Christian families should look like. How Christian young people, how Christian middle-aged people, and how Christian old people should look. What is the family resemblance, basically? And it was kind of a fun message last week on Baby Dedication Sunday to take a generational approach to what does it look like when you're a new believer, what does it look like when you're an older believer, what does it look like when you're kind of in the mid-range as a believer. And John is describing what does it look like to resemble your Christian family. And then this morning, as the text continues, he continues to talk about family resemblance. And it's a very powerful text. I'm excited to jump into it with you. We're going to be taking our text this morning from 1 John chapter 2, verses 16 through 17. Except he's going to start talking about what does our Christian family not look like. In fact, I love the first few words of this morning's text. Do not love. It like comes as a relief to me to find out that the Bible doesn't expect me to love everything. Because if you read through 1 John, you read through 2 John, and even the Gospel of John, it's like, oh, I get it, I'm supposed to be loving. Well, I don't always feel loving, I don't particularly come across as loving, and so I like verses that say, do not love, because I feel like maybe there's a hope for me to be a good Christian if I don't have to love all the things. And but John goes on to say what we're not supposed to love. What is a family resemblance when it looks like something that Christians are not supposed to love? We know from the text that we're supposed to love each other, and he's describing that fellowship, old people, young people, 
and of uh, people in the team. But John, in this morning's text, says, I'm just going to read the three verses that we're looking at this morning. Do not love the world or the things that belong to the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in him. For everything that belongs to the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride in one's lifestyle, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world, with its lust, is passing away, but the one who does God's will remains forever. So I want you to see the whole text, and then we're going to go back to the first verse, verse 15, and kind of work our way through it. Just, you know, unless you've been following along devotionally during the week, reading through 1 John, which I would encourage you to do, so that you've already experienced God's word, and then it kind of marries with what you're hearing from the Holy Spirit through the sermon, and then God's word comes alive through illustrations and uh, study that I bring to it. But even if you're not familiar with the text, if you were to summarize in one word what John is talking about, what's one of the big ideas or themes of these three verses, you would probably just quickly look through and say, well, it's the world. Do not love the world or the things of the world. The things of the world are passing away. The things of the world look like this. And he goes on to describe the lust of the eyes, the flesh, the pride of life, or pride in his lifestyle. And so if we're going to understand what John is writing to his first century readers, we kind of need to know what he means by that word, the world, because he says, don't love it. And if you're anything like me, the first thing that you think of is, well, surely in the original language, he must be using a different word from the word that's found in John 3.15, which says, for God so loved the world that he gave. He surely must be using a different word that is used in, in John chapter 1, uh, and even in 1 John chapter 1, and in Genesis chapter 1, that in the beginning, God created the world, the heavens and the earth. Surely he must be using a different word, because he's saying, don't love it. But, but when we look in the Bible, and we think about, what do I know about the world? Well, God created it, so it, it's, it's holy. It's, as he created it, it's something that should be loved. And the most famous verse in the Bible says that God loves the world, and yet in John, and John actually wrote that verse through the influence of the Holy Spirit. John wrote John 3.16, the same guy that writes, don't love it. <laughs> so either he's confused, or maybe there's, in the original language, there's three different words with three different meanings, and so it's clearly, you know, no, there's no easy out. The word is cosmos. Makes sense, right? In the beginning, God created the cosmos. John 3.16. For God so loved the cosmos. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. Do not love the cosmos. Oh, bullshit. This is like my actual life, you know? How in the world am I supposed to make any sense of this text at all when, in my mind anyway, there's an obvious disparity. There's a big problem here. God created the world, same word, cosmos. God loves the world, gave Jesus to the world, cosmos. And John says we're not supposed to love the world, the cosmos. Something that I found helpful. With Thanksgiving coming, a lot of us are thinking about either entertaining in our home or possibly going home, our ancestral home, the home where we grew up in, or doing some traveling or visiting a family member in their home. And we all, when we say the word home and we see the 
about going home for thanksgiving or i can't wait to go home or i can't wait to have people come and visit my home there's really three different ways that we what we mean by the word home we mean the actual house one of the reasons we look forward to thanksgiving in our home is it's filled with memories of thanksgiving past our homes look a certain way maybe there's pets that live there that we're looking forward to that reside in the physical structure of the house our house and i mean this in a good way smells unique because it was built before there was the united states of america so it's got like a vintage patina to the smell and we eat wood so it's got a wood smell and that works for us that works for a lot of people and so when i say i'm looking forward to hosting thanksgiving in my home i'm referring to part partly i'm referring to the structure we just like our house it's comfy we're also referring to the people boys are coming home right yay that'll be great so we're looking forward to, and, and chris's mom and dad will come over and we have some other family members and some friends that will join us and so when i say i'm looking forward to being home for thanksgiving just like you would say it regardless of where we're having thanksgiving if i had to choose the dwelling i'd rather have the people right but i mean both and so thanksgiving to you means certain people will be seated at the table and that's that's home for you even if you choose to have thanksgiving in a restaurant and you're still thanksgiving to you is a certain group of people so home can mean a physical structure uh, where we live or grew up or raised our families home can mean the people that we to whom we are related or close to or sharing holidays with we also know that part of the joy or the drama of hosting thanksgiving in our homes or going to a different home for thanksgiving is some homes when you walk in the door take your shoes off and it's very comfortable and cozy because the house has central air and heated evenly throughout the house and so you can wander around in your socks and they have nice thick comfortable carpets that they don't want you to drag your shoes all over and so in some homes the, the value of that home is there's a place for you to take your shoes off when you go into that home our home we have the opposite value Please don't take your shoes off. Our house is not evenly heated. There are cold parts of the floor, and I might need to go bring more wood in. So please keep your shoes on. Don't tell me you can't fill the wood box because you took your shoes off. We have a different value. Uh, in some homes, there are pets, and in those homes that have pets, even amongst families that really that means home to them or spending time with a certain loved one who happens to be four-footed. Uh, sometimes that pet is allowed on the furniture and sometimes that pet is not. Some homes don't even have pets. Uh, and, and so there's different value systems in everybody's home. We each have traditions around the Thanksgiving table. Those represent our values. And so when I say we're looking forward to having Thanksgiving at home, it might be a physical structure that we're looking forward to. It might be the group that we're going to be with. It might be the experience or the values that we're going to have while we're there. So it is the Bible uses the word cosmos or world to communicate. There is, in the biblical text, a reference to God's creation. Uh, the Bible actually sometimes refers to human bodies as a form of home. The word is temple. And so cosmos can sometimes refer to not just the, the rooted creation, 
fall in the river, you love it, it's beautiful. Uh, it can also refer to like physical people are sometimes regarded that way as well as structure. And then we know that God so loved the world. Well, it's not talking about creation in that passage, although he does love creation and created the physical structure. He's talking about people in general, a group of people, for God so loved people that he gave. And then in this final context, the text that we're looking at this morning, do not love the world, it means keep your shoes on or take your shoes off. Do not love the value system of the world because God created the physical planet, God created people. Both are holy and loved by him and then sin entered. So the kingdom of heaven was replaced by the kingdom of darkness. And that is what is being referred to in the biblical text by the world. The values that are contrary to the things of God. John is saying, do not love the values of this world. Do not love the kingdom of darkness that has supplanted or is in rebellion to the kingdom of God. Because our family resemblance should not hold to those values. Does that help a little bit? I know that I was really confused by this. I was in deep grief for a little while until I really jumped into it. I actually reached out to another pastor who was like basically creating groups. This guy, maybe you want to go to his church, I don't know. Uh, he actually translates the passage for himself every week. And his sermon notes are like a, 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 a package guide. So I reached out to him and said, you got to help me wrap my head around this because i, I got to make it clear to my people and I'm not clear to myself. And my Greek is really weak. It's not strong at all. And so that really helped me to think about that analogy with home being the same difference between physical structure, people, and value system. Same thing regarding the cosmos or the world. So let's continue in the text. Uh, do not love the world or the things that belong to the world. And then John really uh, has this powerful statement, if anyone loves the world, if anyone loves the value system of the world, love of the Father is not in him. He's basically saying you are going to be at odds with your family resemblance. You're not going to mirror the values of your family uh, if you let the dog on the couch, if the value of the home is the dog stays on the floor. There's going to be some tension there. And so where this sermon is going, where the text is going, is what does it look like when we disagree? We know what it looks like when we agree, when our family resemblance is strong. Little children, you've had your sins forgiven. Older men and women of the faith, you've known the Father from the beginning. Young men and women of faith, you are actively engaged in ministry. You are seeing the kingdom of heaven move forward. So we know what it looks like positively with the family resemblance. But John does us the favor of further defining family resemblance by saying, what does it look like when we disagree with something? So we would all agree that God created the world. We would all agree that God created people. But we would also uh, disagree with the values that are contrary to God's kingdom. And then he clarifies, for everything that belongs to the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride in one's lifestyle is not from the Father, but is from the world. So maybe this is a little helpful. I spent some time this week, and I kind of came up with these three ideas regarding the three different uses of the word, the world, to help us really dig deep with, you know, we want to be a people who is defined by having the love of the Father, which means we want to love the things he loves and turn from the things that he hates. And so we need to have a specific metric to know 
to do that. So when it comes to creation, we are to appreciate creation, the world. What does the Bible say regarding the cosmos as in the created plan? That we are to appreciate, that we are to recognize that it was created by God and that we are to manage it well, that we are responsible for how creation is being utilized. And of course, in the world of Christianity, there are some that take that to an extreme, and, and there are some who don't take it seriously enough, and that's probably a whole other sermon, and there's a lot of books that have been, are being written about that. But the bottom line is, from the Bible, if God created the planet, arguably the second greatest gift he ever gave us outside of the gift of his son, ought not we appreciate it? And the answer is yes, we should. We should take care of it and manage it well. So we should appreciate the cosmos. We should appreciate creation. We should appreciate the world. The next use of the word, because we're trying to define what does it look like when we disagree. What does it look like when the family is not on the same page with the world or even with each other? The next use of the word world in Scripture, of course, regards people. For God so loved the world. What are we supposed to do with people? We're supposed to respect them. Because that is exactly what God has done for us. Every single person that God has created is a person that God loves, bottom line. It's just that simple. Uh, and and this, this question is, in our current culture, it's, you can't avoid it anytime you, uh, whatever source you use to get your news. Uh, this is always one of the top articles on the front page of your webpage, is, is how do you feel towards certain subsets? Illegal immigrants, people of lifestyles that are not found in the scripture, uh, people, uh, another comment, people who define themselves as evangelicals, a lot of people don't like. What are we supposed to do with all these different tribes, people of different faith systems? It doesn't matter where you get your news. This is constant. This is huge right now. What is the biblical teaching regarding people? It's very simple. If God created them, they are accepted. They are loved. Why? For God so loved the cosmos. For God so loved the people. So if it's a person, uh, there is to be a default attitude and loving response towards that person. Okay, well, where do we stop that? Because we would all say, and we can't agree all the time with everybody, uh, we, we have disagreements even in the context of our own home. But we live in the same house, uh, we love all the same people seated at the table, and for the most part we have all the same family values. But if you tell me right now there's not going to be any tension on Thanksgiving, then you're drunk. And that's a source of tension. <laughs> so it's going to happen. So where do we draw the line? Where are our boundaries? What does the Bible have to say? Well, we know that John says, do not love the cosmos or the world value that is in rebellion against God. And so biblically, we disagree with anything that is not of the kingdom of heaven. So we appreciate creation and we accept people, but we disagree with anything that is not in the kingdom of heaven. And, and of course, the most important place, we're, we're considered sincere or hypocritical in, in, in the, the measure that we apply that message to ourselves first. 
do I disagree with how I am making some of my choices and then working out from there? This is how we, we are sincere or hypocritical. If we start with someone with whom we, well, I disagree with someone who just because they hiked across the border from Guatemala with a tragic backstory now has a job that I should have, well, if we haven't worked that metric from the inside out, we're just going to come across as hypocritical. Because then someone says, well, I thought you were a person of faith. Aren't you supposed to love people? And here we go, off to the races. So we appreciate creation, we accept people, and we disagree with anything that is not in accordance with the kingdom of God. Uh, and this is from the text. For everything that belongs to the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride in one's lifestyle, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And then John goes on to say that in the world with its lust, is passing away, but the one who does God's will remains forever. And so the big question this morning when we look at verse 17 is, as people of faith, we want to be bound in the will of God, but there's a tension between love and lust. We see this in the text, and how, when we think about the difference between love and lust, is that love serves, lust demands. If we were to continue that thought, we could say that love serves me, whereas lust demands what it wants. Lust demands desire. And John is saying that the world with its lust, the pride of life, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, is passing away, but the one who does God's will remains forever. So there's a tension between love and lust. You could also say in another way that there's a tension between skin and spirit. Uh, that if it belongs to the kingdom of heaven, then we should engage with it, but if it has more to do with this planet, we need to understand that the timer is ticking. Examples that I feel in modern society that we have lusted after something that is leading us down a bad path um, that's actually dangerous and ungodly. Uh, here's one. I think that if we think about the lust of the flesh, you know, we like to be comforted, we like to do things that are comforting. Um, an example of a that I think you can make mistakes or fall in the lust of the flesh is dating. Might be stepping on a little toes here. I lied to you. I managed to drizzle juvenile drinking board. Vaping is illegal. If anyone under the age of 18, so if you vape in school, you may get arrested if you are not listening to the school and stop vaping. And you might end up before my board. And that means now we're going to have a conversation about what you did that was wrong and why it was wrong and what you're going to do to change your ways. Well, why do I feel that vaping could fall under lust of the flesh as a comforting thing? Well, it's because we've replaced the comfort that comes from uh, nicotine, the burning tobacco, with a product that is less, less noxious uh, to surrounding people by vaping. And, and we're familiar with it. It smells like, uh, you know, instead of following a person into Target who is smoking a traditional cigarette to seek the comfort that comes from nicotine, comfort's not a bad thing, but we would all agree that smoking a cigarette is kind of noxious to those that they don't smoke and can be kind of noxious to those that do. Um, so I'm not saying necessarily that smoking is a sin, but I am saying it probably falls under this idea of lusting after a degree of comfort. And it's something to think about. But we've gone so far now that we've decided that vaping is better because now it smells like cotton candy when you're walking behind someone. Or dill pickles when you're walking behind someone into Target. 
And that is just a cloud of harmless vapor, right? Because it's actually called vaping. And conveniently, you just plug a little thing into a USB drive and it's powered very easily. It clips into your pocket. Uh, you know, no one's going to light their mattress on fire at night because they'll have a vape before they go to bed, uh, as opposed to lighting up a cigarette and not putting it out properly. And so it's way more convenient. And because of the flavors, it's also way more attractive to young people. So why is it illegal? Well, here's something that I learned about this particular, what I would call, comfort or lust of the flesh. It's not vapor. In fact, it's been mislabeled. Vaping is not vaping. It's aerosoling. And oil is being superheated until it turns into a cloud of vapor or smoke that is then inhaled. It's like taking a can of WD-40 with a skinny little nozzle, pointing it into your mouth, and pressing a button. That's exactly what vaping is. It is not steam. It is oil. Never in the world's history have we ever been injecting hot oil into our lungs at the rate that our teenagers are vaping oil into. It's not steam. If you walk through that cloud of vapor, if you smell that dill pickle or the cotton candy, you have ingested WD-40. It's the same idea. It's an aerosol. It's not steam. It's not standing over the tea kettle because you're a little congested and you kind of want to get things moving. That's not it. It's like standing over a pot of boiling WD-40 and then taking those oil particles into your lungs and it coats the inside of a person who vapes lungs. And now we're wondering why people are sick. We've never studied it. We only know what it does to rats. It kills them dead. But we haven't been vaping long enough to know what the long-term effects are on, our, on, on an adult lung, never mind a developing lung. I would humbly submit that vaping is an example of lust of the flesh. It's a desire for comfort. Everyone who smokes will tell you that it helps them relax, helps them think a little bit better. It's the same reason I eat double stuff Oreos. You know, so I'm not coming down on people who smoke. I just have a different drug of choice. Uh, whoopie pies, hot chocolate. Those are, those, are, those are my, that's the area where I have to struggle with lust of the flesh, uh, with wanting to be comforted. But it's evil. It is not safe. People are making money off of this, and I would say it's doomed to be destroyed with all things physical. We're not going to need that level of comfort in heaven. In heaven, you're never going to be like, oh man, I just really need a cigarette right now. That's not going to be your experience in eternity. Vaping is doomed to go away with the world, uh, whereas being comforted is not, but it will come more close to our faith in Jesus. And so, a proposed lust of the flesh, here's something that's actually happened in your family. This probably falls more under pride of life and pride of lifestyle and just pride or boasting or arrogance. You're a high school student, and in the world of bad kids and good kids, on that spectrum of chuckleheads and kids that people actually find delightful, you're much closer to a good kid than a chucklehead. Okay? You're not perfect. You wouldn't say you're perfect. You wouldn't say you're perfect, but you're a good kid. Um, but being a kid, you're easily distracted. You're not an adult. You don't process reality the same way adult, adults do. And you got a couple bad grades, and you uh, did lousy on a test, and you didn't hand in a couple of assignments. You got a couple zeros. And so you go to check power school, and your GPA has fallen below the level that you or your parents were going to accept. And because, honestly, you just don't want to hear about it. 
because you're a good kid. So you don't want to get busted up over, you know, being a little bit lazy or not as focused as you should have been or maybe you didn't understand the assignment. And you just need a little time and to, to fix it. You're just kind of hoping your parents don't, don't look at power school because you know what will happen if they do. They will take everything that you find joyful and peaceful about your life and tell you that you can't do it until your GPA goes up. And you don't want to hear about it because you're a good kid. But your parents or friends or some of your teachers or they happen to hack into your power school and you try to change the password without them knowing, but you sent the notification to your parents so they cut you off of the street. And so now they're curious about power school and they found that you failed a test and didn't hand in your homework assignment. Here it comes. So, you know, all of your preferred after-school activities are actually over right now. Uh, no more uh, double-step Oreos for you. Your parents are not going to buy your rhubarb cream-flavored vape anymore. You're going to have to have your traditional vape flavor like your life is actually over. And you don't want to hear about it. And you're like, if my parents are so concerned about shutting everything in my life down that I find to be joyful and happy and provide meaning for the sake of a couple stupid homework assignments and a test that I didn't do so great on, well, then why do I still have to do my chores? Because that's consuming my time as well. And so you decide, running through this metric, that your parents didn't uh, appreciate you as their creation. And they're not accepting you as a person. I made my decision to not turn in my homework. Deal with it. And now we're in disagreement. So you decide, well... I'm just not going to do my chores. So now, you're not appreciating the house that you live in. You're showing disobedience to your parents. You're not appreciating or accepting them as people who God has blessed you with, who actually know stuff that you don't know. And the disagreement continues. So that might fall under the pride of life. Because I, I think if we don't take the time to talk about what does this actually mean, it's easy to say, well, I don't lust much. And so I think it's worth taking a little bit of time to kind of talk about what, is, what are we actually talking about in these areas. So two, two examples of how we might be acting prideful in different scenarios or might be seeking comfort over our well-being in a couple of scenarios, pursuing lustful or the things that we desire over serving in love. So here's the clarifying question and then the conclusion thought for this morning's message based off of this text. How do I disagree in a way that appreciates and accepts? Go back to the kids. I don't appreciate the fact that my parents just ended all my after-school activities because of my grades. How do I show my appreciation for the house that they have provided me for? Well, I would humbly suggest we do chores. That that's not the appropriate way to serve that elementary parent. If you're going to take all the fun stuff out of my life, and I'm going to stop doing the chores, and, and now we're going to have even more things to be in disagreement, disagreement about. So I would humbly suggest, from the text, when it comes to your world or your cosmos, your home, that young person, that you would keep doing the chores, even if you're mom and dad are on the outs right now. Why? Because it shows that you accept them for who they are in your life. First commandment regarding parents. First commandment is promise. Honor your father and mother so that it may go well with you in the place that the Lord is going to provide for you. And so, showing them love and honor is the right way to do. And, and so, what do we do with humans, right? The second use of the word cosmos. We 
consistent. They're my parents. I honor them. Sometimes I like them less than others. Sometimes I love them less than others. But at the end of the day, I'm going to do what the Bible says, and I'm going to accept them for who they are. They are my mom and my dad. So I'm going to honor them. And then when does it come to the area of which we're going to disagree? The family values. My parents have a value when they raised me in some place, and I have a value of I don't really care. <laughs> That's where the conversation needs to take place, right? But not in rebellion in our shores or acting disrespectfully towards our parents. If we're going to disagree, let's limit it to this, we don't hold a common value here. Help me understand why passing a certain class or having a grade above a certain measure is acceptable and having a grade below that is not. But that's where the that's where the conversation needs to be limited. It's not in challenging that authority in the household and, and, and being disrespectful. We can apply this in other areas as well. A person with whom we just have a lifestyle that we cannot reconcile with at all. It could be uh, a family member that is living a lifestyle that is just damaging to them and others. Um, my dad's in rehab right now. He's an alcoholic. And he turned himself into what the medical community is now considering possible actual dementia. His liver is actually too good to fully part. So I have to wrestle with how do I uh, appreciate him as a person that God has created? How do I accept him as my dad when I vehemently disagree with his deep-felt beliefs? That's where it gets real, real familiar. That would be an example of a family member with whom we disagree. And then, of course, there's, as I mentioned earlier, there are groups in society with whom we just simply do not agree. But we have allowed our disagreement of their value system to bleed into diminishing our love and acceptance for them as God's creation and as a person that He loves. And the Bible says, in the beginning, God created heaven and the earth, for God so loved the world. Two thirds of our response towards people should be appreciating that they are God's creation and accepting them, loving them. Then we're able to speak up disagreement where they belong. But I think sometimes it's so easy for us to allow the disagreement to filter into our views of a person and where uh, and, and who they are in the eyes of God. So I kind of dropped a lot on you guys this morning, and I think this is a pretty good place to kind of uh, wrap this sermon up as one concluding idea, and then uh, we'll have one further song and, and, a, and a brief time of prayer and a wrapping I, I took the time to make a number of illustrations, hopefully to try and clarify what the text is talking about this morning, because I feel like this text is one that might be easy to gloss over, but the idea is that John is talking about what it looks like to be in a family of faith, even when we disagree, or when we disagree with others. And so it's a very powerful text. Finally, this morning, by way of conclusion, I've had the opportunity uh, this week to go to not one, but two funerals. Now, you party too hard. Your idea of a weekend is not my idea of a weekend at all. Uh, I was at a funeral Friday night in Springfield, Massachusetts, and at a funeral yesterday in Wisconsin, Connecticut. And I was with some friends on Friday, and as we uh, were walking past our friend who had died, Obi Kaplan, 
my friends turned to me and said, like, is this helpful? <laughs> this line's moving too slow right now, if you know what I mean. There's an hour and a half wait to go and see the family, which means you spend about 15 minutes with the dearly departed right here. And, you know, so you're having this conversation taking place in front of a loved one that's not here anymore. And, you know, some jokes are being made like, man, that's the longest I've seen him lie still in my entire life. You know, gallows being right there. Like, I don't know what help. But my friend turned to me and said, is this helpful? Right? This. Is this helpful right now? He wasn't feeling that it was particularly helpful. I said, yeah, it is helpful. Talk to families who are going through grief, the seeing your loved one's body there, but not their spirit, actually helps quite a bit because you realize they're still one with you. That just the skin, just the charcoal, to use another human word, the flesh has died, but the spirit is still very much alive. And, and I thought that the part that I I miss this part. This is a great guy. 61 years old. Sudden heart attack. He was serving at his church. Cleaning up the yard. And he's dying. Nobody was with him. And, and we've been friends for years and years and years. So I miss. The part that I miss is right here. But his spirit. I see it in the face of his son. Who's dealing with the other loved ones who are passing in front of him. He's still here. The, the part that I miss is, is gone, but not the part that I love. And, and the final big idea this morning is that when it comes to matters of family redemption, it has to do with the spirit. Yes, our children might look like us physically, but the stuff that really gets us is when they act like us. Or they have the same expressions of us. Or they lack the same of us. It's the spirit of the child where we see of our loved ones who have died that gives us comfort because we see their spirit still alive in, in the family, the surviving family. And when it comes to the gospel, there's a tension between love and lust, things of the world and things of heaven, and it is the spirit that brings us to family redemption. And that's the joy that is defined in a fellowship of men and women who know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. If you don't know Jesus this morning, how do I get to family resemble? How am I born again into a new family? And the answer is that we confess the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of our life. And we acknowledge it for what it is. It's dead. It's passing away. It needs to be evermore. And we accept by faith the kingdom of heaven. And we bring it to alignment. The fact that we live in a world created by God, surrounded by people that God has created, according to kingdom values. And the peace that floods into our lives specific text that helps us understand how, what is our approach to those with whom we disagree, whether it's in the body of faith or from without. And so I'm going to uh, pray with you guys, and we'll have one more song. Please enjoy my prayer. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for your word. And Father, it's our prayer now that 
of the Holy Spirit really brings understanding to what inspired John to write. We are so grateful for creation. We appreciate it. We're so grateful for people that we love. Would you increase our capabilities of loving each other and everyone who is created? And Father, when it comes to times where we're just going to disagree, where kingdom values are in conflict with worldly values, would you give us great wisdom and peace, causing us to dig deep in the reasons that we do have to love and